Well, shortly after my wife and I got married, uh, we thought we weren't ready for a kid, so we decided to buy a dog. And we had a one-bedroom apartment, so we decided to buy a yellow lab. Um, and he was a unique animal. He would eat uh, towels. Hand, he would eat, hand, I, plural, uh, hand towels whole and pass them. And we took, them to, took him to the vet. And the vet said, well, that's, that's not normal, but he seems to be okay. Um, he ate a perfect circle in the middle of one of our apartment carpets that cost us our deposit. I wasn't even mad, though, because it was, it was a perfect circle, just right in the middle of the apartment carpet there. But one thing I appreciated about Jack is every time I came home, Jack Bauer was his name, by the way, because we were fans of a particular TV show at the time. Um, but one of the things I appreciated about Jack is anytime I came home, he was excited to see me. I'd open the door, he'd be there, tail wagging, and if you know labs, he would get into one of those terrors where he just ran nowhere and everywhere at the same time around the apartment, banging into every... That's why we got rid of him, because Josh, my oldest now, was, was a, a toddler learning how to walk, and that tail from that 90-pound yellow lab was just a deadly weapon. So he went to go live with my in-laws, but he would whip around the apartment, and then my wife and I would come in, we'd get settled, we'd sit down on the couch, and then he'd come and just plop himself right there by us. And it wasn't enough that he would just be in close proximity, like he had to have his body up on our legs, and he would just move himself over until he was with us that, that much. And that's really what his drive was. He wanted to be with us. He was excited we were there. He didn't care what we had brought him home, if we had brought him anything. He didn't care what treats we had. I mean, he did when we had them, but really he just wanted us. And as weird as it sounds, men, to say that you need to be like my dog when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, that's really how we should be with our relationship with Christ. We should just want to be with him. We should want him and not necessarily just what he does for us or provides for us. John chapter 4 is an account of Jesus uh, healing an official's son. But as we get into the text, before we ever get to the healing, in verse 43 we read, After two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Verse 44 is interesting. It causes some interpretive challenges for us. Because Jesus has now left Samaria. And you remember all the way back before going to Samaria, he was down baptizing in, in he was in the region of Judea, and as he was baptizing there in the region of Judea, the Pharisees had heard, hey, Jesus' disciples are baptizing more than, than John's disciples, and Jesus didn't want there to be a conflict, so Jesus said, okay, we're going to leave, and it said that he departed for Galilee, but he, remember, had to pass through Samaria, and now on the back end of our interaction with the woman at the well, and then last week looking at the evangelistic explosion that took place in Samaria as a result of that interaction, we understand more of what Jesus meant when he said he had to pass through Samaria. Well, now he's leaving Samaria, continuing his journey that he intended to go on up into the region of Galilee. But then John includes this little parenthetical statement in verse 44 that Jesus himself had said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then in verse 45, it says the Galileans welcomed him. What's his hometown? Where does he not have honor? Right, that, That's the, the interpretive challenge here, because it looks like the Galileans are excited to see him. So that's led some to say, well, it, John must have been saying that his hometown was Judea and Jerusalem, and the conflict that he experienced there with the Pharisees and the religious leaders 
was what John was saying, uh, Jesus was referring to when he said a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's an option. However, the problem with that is it, it doesn't match up with the rest of John's descriptions of Jesus' hometown. Elsewhere, John describes in chapter 1, verses 45 through 46, in chapter 9, verse 19, that Jesus is from where? Jesus is from Nazareth, which is up in the region of Galilee. And so it would be a departure for John to describe Judea as Jesus' hometown when other times he's referring to Nazareth specifically as the region where Jesus was from, where his hometown was. And the other thing it implies about Jesus is that Jesus is somehow shying away from conflict with the the Jewish leaders. And we know, and in fact, next week as we get into chapter 5 and Jesus is back in Jerusalem and he's going to heal a man on the Sabbath and the Jews are going to take issue with that, Jesus was not one to shy away from conflict with the Pharisees. And so the, the second option then is that John is actually referring to Jesus' hometown there up in Galilee. But that's not without his problems either. Because in verse 45, it says that the Galileans welcomed Jesus because what? They had seen all that he had, all that he had done. That's the key here. See, as, as Jesus enters into Galilee, I think what John is doing in verse 44 is he's foreshadowing the problems that are going to be a, a, an issue there in the region. That, yeah, people are going to flock to Jesus initially, and they're going to want to be around Jesus, and they're going to want to hear from Jesus, but the people are not really after Jesus. They're after what Jesus can do for them. They want to be entertained. They want to be healed. They want to be uh, maybe boosted a little bit financially. The vendors there, they're thinking, hey, Jesus is in town. This is going to draw a lot of people to us. But they didn't really want Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus would eventually pronounce judgment on this particular area where he says, look, if the miracles that were done with you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so I think what we have in John 6, or in John 4, rather, verse 44, is a little bit of a a parenthetical statement that is foreshadowing what was to come in Galilee. And so Jesus goes up to this region and Yeah, he's welcomed, but it's that welcoming that was similar to those in chapter 2 that were following him, that Jesus said he did not entrust himself to them, for he knew what was in the heart of men. He needed no one to bear testimony about the the genuineness of their faith. The interest, the welcome of the Galileans is not a genuine interest in welcome. Maybe some amidst them, yeah, it was genuine, but by and large, I think what we see is this spurious faith, this desire to be entertained by what Jesus can do rather than Jesus himself. And sometimes we can fall into that trap as well, men. We can make our walk with Christ about what Jesus does for us rather than about Jesus himself. Our first point this morning is this. Make your walk Jesus-centered. Make your walk Jesus-centered. In a world that we find is constantly catering to our needs and our comforts and our wants and desires, right? This becomes increasingly difficult for us. In a world that's about what's best for us, it's hard to make our lives about someone else. The other day I was reading the headlines, which is an exercise in trust in the sovereignty of God every single day, is it not? But I read this one that just made me shake my head. It said, supply chain disaster threatens Christmas. What? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. From a worldly perspective, it does. Why? Because from a worldly perspective, Christmas is all about the stuff. 
I want my Black Friday deals from Amazon and Walmart and Best Buy, and I want them to compete with each other and go toe-to-toe so that I get the cheapest price. And then I want it tomorrow, if not today. That's how we've been wired. And, and yet the reality, man, if we think about Christmas biblically, we could be in the middle of the Saharan desert with a canteen and a campfire and celebrate Christmas. Because Christmas is not about the stuff, not to sound hallmark and, and cliche, but it's about what? Jesus, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. If you haven't heard that yet, here you go. There's the first time this year you've heard that. But man, Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. And I think this supply chain disaster with the ports being backed up and everything, I think what it's revealing to us is a little bit of the the materialistic gods that we have in our lives. And like these people were coming to Jesus because they wanted what Jesus could do for them. We need to be careful of going to Jesus, not just for what Jesus can do for us, but because we want Jesus. We want him, who he is. Maybe you've heard me before talk about filling our lives with things that stir our affections for Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. And if that's coffee, awesome. Because coffee, what it should do for us, men, is it should stir our affections for Jesus by causing us to thank him for it, worship him for it, praise him for that glorious dirty water that wakes us up every morning. We need to fill our lives with things that make us love Jesus more, not just love what Jesus does for us. And some, of, some in this room might have more of that Jesus benefits-centered walk. You're primarily focused when it comes to your relationship with Jesus on what does it do for me? What do I get out of it? And when we embrace that mindset, we become, in essence, functional health, wealth, and prosperity adherence. Believing that if I am putting my two cents into my relationship with Jesus, that I'm going to get a return on my investment. We make it transactional. We become like these Galileans excited to welcome Jesus back to their town because they think, well, this is going to boost morale. Or you know what? This is going to help because Jesus is going to come heal the lame and cast out demons. Or this is going to help because this is the Super Bowl of our time. time. And so people are going to flock here and they're going to stay in our hotels and they're going to eat at our restaurants and this is going to be great for the economy. A Christ-centered walk has instead the mindset that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have what? Suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's concern was that he might have Jesus. So much so that he said, take everything else. I'll give it all to you. In fact, I'm willing to suffer earthly. I'm willing to suffer this light momentary affliction, as he would say, in exchange for Jesus. Or what he says in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer about me. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's mindset was, this life is no longer about me. It's no longer about what Jesus can do for me. In fact, elsewhere, Paul said, look, my aim is not to please men. If my aim was to please men, I would not be doing what I'm doing. But my aim is to please Christ. Christ-centered or me-centered? Let's talk some diagnostic questions here. When you make a decision in your life, are you thinking, how is this going to impact my relationship with Jesus? When you make a decision in your life, are you thinking about, well, how is this going to honor or dishonor his name? When things don't go well for you, do you become irritable or angry when your plans fall through? It's not to say we never become disappointed. It's not to say we never even from time to time get frustrated, but are you quick to remember, okay, it's not about what my will is, but his will? Do you expect things to break your way when you've had a good week doing the DVR? Oh, man, it's been solid. I hit the DVR every single day this week, and I'm angling for this promotion. Man, I'm lying. This should go well. Sometimes we make jokes out on the, the golf course. If some, somebody's burning the edges on their putts and not doing their putts, I'll ask, hey, did you do your DBR this week? <laughs> or if they're just dropping them like crazy, it's like, oh, you did do your DBR this week, didn't you? No, but sometimes we embrace that transactional mindset. Okay, well, I've been consistent, so therefore I expect something good to happen. Or do you find that your closest times with Jesus are those times that you feel like you need something from him? Like those Galileans, Jesus is coming back and they're like, this is great, we've got these needs and here's Jesus coming back, this is wonderful. Make your walk Jesus-centered. Well, as he enters into Galilee, they, they welcome him, and, and this royal official approaches Jesus. And before we get into the account, there's some who want to connect this account with the account of the healing of the centurion's servant in the Synoptic Gospels. But there's a few reasons why I don't think we can do that. Number one, this is a, a, a royal official in the account here, right, which it says nothing about him being a Gentile at all. The Roman centurion, clearly a Gentile. This man was most likely a servant in the, uh, the, the, the service of, of Herod, King Herod at the time. And so this was likely a, a Jewish man and a Jewish royal official that comes to Jesus, not necessarily a Gentile. The second thing is, in the Synoptic Gospels, the royal centurion's servant was the one that was sick. But in John's account here of the official, it's his son who's sick. Third, We'll notice in the account, this official begs Jesus, implores him twice, hey, come with me so that you can heal my son. But in the account with the centurion's servant, you remember the centurion says to Jesus, hey, you don't need to come with me. In fact, I'm not worthy of that because I know that if you just speak the words, he can be made well. And then the fourth reason is, as we'll see in the text, uh, Jesus does not respond 
all that positively to this royal official's request, whereas the centurion, he says, he's marveling at his, his faith. So I think we're dealing with two separate accounts. So if you had anyone say, yeah, I think they're the same accounts. John was borrowing from the synoptics. I don't think it holds up. I think this is a separate account that John was, uh, was privy to, that, that he witnessed there in this region uh, where Jesus returned. It says there to Cana. Look, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So right away, we, we get into this scenario where you've got geographical regions. Well, Cana was, was up above the Sea of Galilee, because the Sea of Galilee, if you've been to Israel, or even if you haven't, you've heard people talk about it, it is down in this swale, down in this valley. And that's why the storms are so bad, because the, the plains, the flat areas up top there, the winds howl across them and then dive down across the, the sea there. And that's what churns up the, the storms so badly on the Sea of Galilee. So this man, this uh, official, lives in Capernaum, which is a, a key town in Jesus' ministry. And he hears that Jesus has come back to the region in Cana. Well, Cana was, was up from the Sea of Galilee. So the, the official had to travel, and we'll find out later in the text, this is a, a, at least a two-day journey up to Cana, where Jesus happened to be at this time. And so uh, the man comes to him, and, and he's concerned because his son is ill, it says in verse 47, even to the point of death. Now, those of you in the room who are, are fathers or grandfathers or your uncles or you know a child, right? You can understand this man's urgency here. He's got a child who is sick to the point of death and he's heard enough about Jesus to know that Jesus is a miracle worker, to know that Jesus is able to, uh, to, to heal his son. And so he approaches him and he implores him. He begs him. He pleads with him. He says, please come back with me. Can we, let's go. We need to go right now. Let's go down. It's a downhill journey. We'll make double the time, right? Let's, let's get back home because my son is dying and I need you. I think we would be in the same position as this official. And yet look at Jesus' response in verse 48. Jesus said to him. And I think what he's about to say is aimed at more than him. I think it's aimed at those that are gathered around. I think this is aimed at the, the Galileans that are there welcoming Jesus. But he responds to him. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The signs and wonders that Jesus performs are meant to validate his authority, are meant to give credence to his message, but they are not meant to cause people to believe. It's never the point of signs and wonders and miracles. In fact, you remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, after the resurrection. He says, will not believe until I see. And Jesus comes to Thomas in his grace and his mercy, and he condescends and he says, Thomas, come and, come and feel. And he sees and he touches and he feels and he, he realizes, wow. And Thomas's confession that follows right after that is my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response is, you believe because you what? See. see. He said, but I, I tell you what, blessed are those that are going to come after you who believe even though they have not seen. So Jesus here is condemning this fascination with him, saying, you want me because you've seen what I can do. You don't really want me. You want my benefits. And then you'll follow me? 
Once you see the signs that I do, that, then you'll believe. So this is a, a rebuke from Jesus. And again, that may seem, may seem harsh because here you have this man who's, who's pleading for Jesus to come and heal his son who's at the point of death. And Jesus says, what's wrong with you people? But the, the grace, the, the mercy of Jesus is contained in this statement here because he wants to make sure that they're not following him for the wrong reasons. And so the rebuke is an opportunity for them to understand that Jesus is not just some grand magician who's there to fix their problems. That there's something greater that they need to trust in and believe in than just the fact that he can stop this sickness from taking this little boy's life. What if Jesus hadn't healed this man's son? What if Jesus hadn't healed the centurion's servant? What if he hadn't healed the lame man that we're going to find in John chapter 5 next time we're together? What if Jesus had left Lazarus in the tomb? What if he hadn't restored sight to the blind? Raised the widow's son? If he had never done any of those things, would Jesus have still done enough? Yes. Because the greatest thing that Jesus came to do was none of that. But to preach the message of the cross that he died on. Repent and believe. Jesus said, I I need to go and preach because that is why I was sent. What's the message that he was preaching? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What was that that they were to believe in? It was his atoning death on the cross that was yet future for them. But now we look back on it and understand that's the greatest thing that Jesus has ever done. And that's enough. And so as this man is coming to Jesus, begging him to go and do this for his son, Jesus didn't need to go and do that for this man. And men, as as we have all of these things in our minds, God, please do all this for me. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Men, God doesn't need to do any of that for us because our second point this morning, he's already done enough. Understand that Jesus has already done enough. And this is about understanding the value of Christ in the crucifixion. Wanting Jesus for his great sacrifice for us, as Paul said in Romans 5, while we were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. Being so overwhelmed by the gift of his life, his death and his resurrection, that we dare not move off that to say, yeah, that's great, but if I could only have this, that would be even better. Man, Jesus owes us nothing, whereas we owe him everything. Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? I think when we read that, we emphasize the wrong part. We emphasize the part that's like, well, see, God's going to provide for you because he already gave you Jesus. So he's going to give you these other things. I don't think that's Paul's intention here. I think he's trying to, to, to magnify the cost of our salvation. Look, he already gave us Jesus. 
Is that not enough for us? And the answer is, of course it's enough. He's everything we need. He's all that we need. We have no guarantees from God in this life outside of our salvation and the blessings that come along with it. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the the, the conviction over sin, the instruction in the word of God, the fellowship among the saints. Those are the things that we can hang our hat on. A promotion, a new car, a health diagnosis, none of that's guaranteed for us. A constitutional bill of rights, not guaranteed for us. And so as you sit here this morning, maybe you are in line for a promotion. God may give that to you, but he may pull it out from under your feet. If you're here and you've received a diagnosis and, and you are saying, hey, look, it's cancer. God can and may remove that from you, but he may not. If you're here and, and you're newly married and you've been you and your wife have been wanting that, that child, that baby, and you've been trying and failing and struggling and battling and asking the questions, look, God may give you that child, but he may not. Man, if your faith in Jesus is anchored to what he may do for you, your faith is not anchored at all. Because you're setting yourself up Because someday his will is not going to match up with your will. And then you're going to be left saying, what is it that I believe in at all? And you're going to be pointing at the finger going, God, you failed me. Jesus, you let me down. In a couple chapters, we're going to get to that part where after Jesus has been preaching on some difficult things, people leave you remember he turns and looks at the disciples and he says to them, do you want to go away too? And Peter, in one of his finer moments, which are rare in the Gospels, <laughs> responds to Jesus and he says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. It's a great statement. That's what we need to have. That's the anchor that we need to have with our faith. It's okay, God, whatever comes our way, whatever you choose to do or not do, we're not going anywhere because you have life and you've provided for us, provided it for us through Jesus. This is what led Peter to write in 2 Peter. He's given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Do you believe that this morning? Everything necessary for life and godliness is ours in Christ and in the scriptures. Jesus is undeniably enough. Verse 49 continues. The official doesn't really register with him. And can we blame him? Right? Again, his son is on the, this deathbed. And he says, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, and your son will live. Whatever there there is in this interaction between this man and Jesus in that statement, there's a a change that begins to take place in this man. Because it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So he, he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, it's about 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Again, the, the, the official implores, keeps pressing. And Jesus does what he's done for you and I so many times. He graciously gives us even that which we have not merited. We have enough in Jesus, but man, let me tell you, that doesn't mean that God's done blessing you. That doesn't mean that you won't receive benefits and blessings from the Lord. It just means that that's not what we're pursuing Jesus for. Jesus responds to this man. He says, go and your son will live. And the man believes, right? And this is a sign that this guy's a little bit different than the, the, the miracle voyeurs that are gathered around going, what's Jesus going to do next? Let's watch and see. He believes and he leaves. How hard must that have been? Here's the guy right in front of you who has the power to heal your child. I would have felt a little bit better bringing Jesus with me. But he says, go. And we often talk about Abraham and Isaac, right? And the, the white space in the scripture of that journey up Mount Moriah there, that, that, that walk up to, to offer Isaac. And what must that have been like? What was going through? What was the conversation like? What must have been going through this man's mind as he was walking back home? Okay. Jesus said he's going to live. I trust he's going to live. And then the servants come out to meet him and tell him, hey, we've got news. And you can imagine his heart may have jumped into his throat for a minute until they say he's recovering. He's recovering, and the man asks, probably with a little bit more than a sneaking suspicion at this point in time, when did he start to get better? And it's so noticeable that the servants can answer that question, right? When we get better from a cold, we might be able to say, yeah, I started to feel better yesterday at some point in time in the afternoon. But remember, this boy is on his deathbed. And when Jesus said, go, your son will live, there was a noticeable change so much that the servants took notice of it to when this man said, well, when did he start to get better? They said yesterday around the seventh hour, around 1 p.m. And then it says when they confirmed his suspicions there, he believed. He himself believed. The belief that he initially had was a belief that Jesus had healed his son, was able to heal his son. And then he goes home and he sees that his son is made well. And that seed of belief there is now turned into a, a genuine faith that this man has afterwards. And then what does he do? He becomes an evangelist, just like the woman in Samaria. Because it says that he believed along with what? His whole household. Again, Jesus didn't have to do anything for this man or from, for his family. But in healing his son, Jesus opened the door and paved the way for the salvation of the entire household. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus taking center stage in our lives. But this is a, a good preview in how this man responded to Jesus. Because notice he didn't go back boasting, going, hey, look at me. Look how great of a dad I am. 
doubt of the year. I walked all the way to Cana, by the way, uphill. <laughs> I found Jesus. I pushed through the crowds and I said, Jesus, here's the game plan. My son, he's, he's dying. I need you to heal him for me. And then when Jesus said, go, your son will live, look how great my faith is. I believed and I walked away. Aren't I impressive? He didn't wink at his wife saying, hey, you can thank me later. He didn't throw a party for the townspeople and even point to his son. Isn't this great? Look at my son. My son's better. Look how great his immune system is. The essential oils worked. Who needs a vaccine for whatever was bugging him? He didn't do any of that, right? What did he do? He didn't point the finger at himself or his family or anyone. He pointed the finger at Jesus. Next week, a guy's going to point the finger at Jesus in a bad way. This is the right way. He's telling his family, this was Jesus who did this. We need to thank Jesus. We need to trust Jesus. We've heard about him. People think he's the Messiah. Look, I think he really is. Now this man wanted not just what Jesus could do for him, but he wanted Jesus. And after he had had an encounter with Jesus, he understood that his whole life was about point number three, which is giving God the glory. Look, when God does act for us, we need to be sure to give him the glory. We have no guarantees that he's going to give us that promotion, but when he does, man, we need to make sure that people know that this is not us, but God. I think one of the easiest ways to do this is when we see someone that we love saved, right? Recently, my... 12-year-old professed faith in, in Christ. And it was overwhelming. He came back from the narrow. By the way, man, I'm so thankful for our church. Can I just tell you that? Uh, just as a dad with kids in this church, the faithfulness of their leaders and uh, you know, Pastor John in the narrow, um, you know, just the the investment that they've made, God has used in a phenomenal way. But he came home from the narrow and he was in tears and we were talking and he's like, I just, I don't feel like, I, I, I don't feel like I've repented enough for God to love me and just battling with this concept. And we talked through it and talked about the gospel again and laid it out. And he said, yeah, I, I'm ready. I'm ready to turn my life over to Jesus. And so, you know, we prayed with him. But man, in the aftermath of that moment, I knew that I had nothing to do with that. I, and even though it was a sermon in the narrow that impacted him to get him on this, this line, I, I knew that it wasn't a result of Louis Azuma, who was preaching in the narrow that night. I was thankful for his faithfulness to do that. But I knew it wasn't his small group leaders. I knew it wasn't his mom. I knew, it wasn't, I knew that this, this was God saving him. God gets the glory for that. I know plenty of pastors who have been faithful to diligently raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord whose kids have walked away from the Lord. None of us can save our kids. None of us can save our grandkids. 
And so when we encounter that, yes, we can point the finger to God and say, God, you get the glory for that. But, but what about when you get the raise at work? Are you glorifying God and giving him the credit for that just as much? Where's the mindset? Well, yeah, it's about time because I have been working hard and staying a little bit longer and I did just nail that project and close that big deal. So I deserve this. Or when you recover from an illness, does God get the glory for that? Or does a drug or a vaccine or an essential oil get the glory for that? And do we give God the glory for everyday blessings as much as we do for eternal blessings? Would others testify that we do? Do your neighbors know, for example, when you get over COVID, that it was God that brought you through that? Do your coworkers know that it was God's favor on your life that led to that promotion, that led to that raise more than your work ethic or your staying the extra hour? Or do they know that you do work hard and stay the extra hour because you want to represent Christ well and glorify Christ in your, in your work ethic, regardless of the outcome? When you get a new house, do your family members know as you step across that threshold that this was God's provision for you? Our lives, everything that we are, men, really is all about Jesus. And we forget that when we make our lives all about what Jesus can do for us like these Galileans that were welcoming Jesus going, all right, let's see, let's, what's, what's the show going to be? What are you going to do this time? We need to be careful not to become like them where our excitement about him is only equal to what he does or has done or will do for us. We need to be more like Jack Bauer, the dog, not the... Not the fictional character. We need to be more like my dog Jack when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. We just want Jesus. More excited about him than what we might get from him. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. So many times I find myself saying that after I finish preaching because I'm reminded of your goodness, your provision your love for us, the gospel, Christ, the cross. We are thankful we are not thankful enough, I fear. I pray that you would make us more grateful people. And in our increase in gratitude, Lord, I pray that you would make us more aware that everything about our lives is for the exaltation of Christ. Every role that we inhabit is about our exaltation of Jesus. Everything that we do at our jobs is about seeing Christ's name magnified, not ours. Every conversation that we have with our family members is an opportunity to exalt Jesus, to point others to Jesus. I pray that we would do that, Lord. Guard our hearts from materialism or from 
falling prey to a, a mindset that is the hideousness of the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that says, well, if you have enough faith, then God is going to do this. Lord, the only equation that that applies to is if we have faith in Jesus' accomplished work for us on the cross, then God, that you will bring us through this life and bring us to be with you in heaven. Everything else we are to say and pray as our Savior did, not our will, but your will be done. And Lord, help us to believe, increase our faith that you are good, that you are loving, and that in everything that you do in our lives, you are working for the good that we would be made more like Jesus. God, I pray that you'd help us to embrace that mindset in a world that is against such a mindset. Help us to hold fast to our confidence in Christ and not just what Christ might do for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.